Hey church, my name's Jason, one of the elders. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 will be our primary passage today. Grateful to get to open up God's word with you as we continue uh, in the midst of this incredibly unique time. We're losing appropriate words and language to define exactly what it is that we're going through. Um, But I'm grateful that in the middle of all of this, we get to do the same thing that we would do otherwise. We get to gather as God's people. We get to open up his word and we get to hear from our God. So this this is what we're going to do today by God's grace, through his word, by the power of his spirit. And in considering this passage uh, today, it, it struck me that we have never had a better time and a better opportunity to judge each other. Let, let's think about this. In, in an era of social media, in the middle of a pandemic, and amidst a fresh racial reckoning, we have the opportunity to read and see the thoughts, actions, and sort of core beliefs and lives of a particular person or of each other, whether in our group, our church, or our, our broader sphere of influence, and we get to covertly judge them in our hearts. It's unprecedented. It's unprecedented. We have an opportunity like never before to judge each other. Perhaps a former church member moved to the suburbs last year and took a picture in front of their new house. Maybe it looks a little bit nicer than your home. It looks a little bit bigger than your home. In fact, they look happier than you do. And so you begin to judge, thinking in your heart, how, how weak they must be and disconnected from the mission of God to go to the suburbs and sell out and buy such a house. At least they're not as strong or as committed to the kingdom as you might be. Perhaps a friend took a picture down at the Columbus statue at Grant Park a couple of weeks ago and posted words explaining their hurt and anger towards white supremacy in our country and in our city. Maybe you didn't totally understand. And so you began to judge, thinking in your heart how out of control and ungrateful they must be. Maybe you thought that if they don't like it here, maybe they should leave. They look angry to you. And you think about how calm you are. They look rebellious to you. And you think about how obedient you are in the face of something that you disagree with. Perhaps you saw a picture on Instagram. It was a group of more than 10 friends enjoying a meal together recently. Some, in fact, were arm in arm in the picture. No one had masks on. They weren't social distancing. And so you began to judge, thinking in your heart how foolish they were behaving. Look at their privilege, you may have said. They look so carefree in the midst of global pandemic, global crisis. Maybe you thought that they were arrogant and and unloving. At least they're not as humble and as loving as you are. Here's the wild thing about judgmentalism. You might be right. That family that moved to the suburbs may be embracing earthly comfort. That that brother or sister protesting down at the Columbus statue may have lost self-control. That, that group of friends may be privileged and they may be foolish. But at some level, 
the condition of another person's heart or the particular details of a situation are irrelevant. No matter their righteousness, the follower of Jesus is called to refrain from this internal self and instant gratification of judgmentalism. Because don't we do this, don't we do this, all of this, because there's something really unsettled in us. See, the suburbs can actually reveal jealousy. Protests can reveal guilt. And friends enjoying each other's company freely is what we're all dreaming about right now. This all leads to judgment. We judge everyone. And every one of us judges You might even be judging me right now because you think I'm judging you based on these fictional scenarios that I've just put together. This is real and we need to talk about it. So let's go to God's word to do so. Romans chapter two, verse one through four. If you're opening your your Bibles, Romans is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the gospels, the first books of the New Testament. Then you'll get to Acts. As you keep turning to the right, you'll hit Romans. If you keep going, you'll hit First and Second Corinthians, and that's when you know to go back to the left. And as always, the table of contents is our friend. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 reads this way. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we need your help. We need your help because left to ourselves, we are already mounting a defense about why we don't need to confess sin today. We're already beginning to think about what's next and not what is present and what is taking place right now. I confess that's happening in my own heart and mind. We're already thinking, perhaps, Father, of what we'd rather be doing. And yet what could be more spectacular, more glorious than coming to your word with your people and hearing eternal things from you, our good and great God. And so, Father, we desire to be more impressed with you today than anything else. Forgive us for how easily distracted we are. Forgive us for how easily taken by instant and momentary pleasures. Forgive us for the ways we will not give ourselves to your word today. So help us, God. Help us to have those kinds of ears that Jesus spoke about in the New Testament. The kind of ears that hear. Because we know that when we hear from you, things change. They, they change in our minds, they change in our hearts, and they, you change the composition and fabric of this world. And we're coming to you in the midst of much need for change. 
And so help us, Father, humble us, Father, unite us, Father, make us your people more and more, Father. And we ask that you would do all of that and so much more for your own glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Well, we've made it to the second chapter. Congratulations. You'll notice right away, though, that we are not free from the first chapter. In other words, Paul is going to be very much connected. He's going to stay close with the themes and the ideas that he's communicated in chapter one. Here as we come to chapter two. And in fact, the way we know this is that word, therefore. Therefore is the very first word of chapter two. This tells us that, that what Paul is about to say is directly connected, directly linked with the previous context. In particular, Paul is keeping in mind everything he's written the church in Rome in, in chapters, chapter one, verses 16 through 32. The gospel is the power and the righteousness of God, right? This is, this is what we ought to keep in mind. Both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks are saved by faith through the work, mercy, and power of Jesus Christ. That's verses 16 and 17. From verses 18 through the end of chapter 1, we're given this grim picture of sin, the wrath and judgment of God upon all unrighteousness and ungodliness. However, it's not just general. Paul gets really specific, doesn't he? He he was precise in his teaching against the idolatry of sex and even listed particular vices and sins that we considered last week. So when Paul says, therefore, he's keeping all of that in mind. Here's, here's what he goes on to say. Read, read the rest with me of Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So in light of what he has just said, the nature of the gospel, and the revelation of God's knowability and creation and the sinfulness of humanity... He said, in light of all of this, there's no excuse. There's no wiggle room. There's no caveat. There's no nuance. There's no excuse. But but did you notice, Paul introduces this interesting literary device. He says, oh man. And he'll use the exact same device, the exact same phrase in verse three, when he says, do you suppose, oh man. So it begs the question, Who's Paul speaking to? And he says, oh man, who who is he referring to? Who is he keeping in mind as he shifts with the therefore there in verse one into chapter two while keeping the content of chapter one in mind? Paul is speaking about a kind of person, a particular kind of person who listens to a sermon about sin and can only think about someone else's need to to hear this call to repentance. In, In other words, he's speaking about the person that could be sitting in, in, in the pew or, or at the Zoom screen, right? And saying, if only my son were here to hear this. If only my husband would, would change in this particular way. If only my mother could hear the words of the preacher today, then real change would take place. This is, this is really important. Whereas when Paul is directly addressing more visible sins of the Gentiles there in, in, in chapter one, verse 18 through 32, He now, in a a sort of prophetic shift, moves away from the Gentiles' overt and and visible sins to speak about the subtle sins and idolatry of his Jewish readers. It's it's like after chapter 1, Paul is anticipating the Jewish response. 
It's as if he's, he's saying, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You think I'm talking only about the Gentiles. In, in other words, he's hearing the retort of the Jews saying, amen, stick it to them. Yes, they need to hear this. This is exactly what these evil Gentiles need to hear. They need to turn or they're going to burn. They need to know that they are ungodly and unrighteous. God's against them. And so Paul is, is essentially like, now I'm talking to you Jews, you who thought that I was just talking to the other guys, the other people, I'm talking to you. Biblically, it's very similar to when the prophet Nathan told King David a story about a thief, about a theft. And David gets indignant. And he even says, this thief should be put to death. And then Nathan flips the script and he says, you are the man. He says, I'm talking to you. Paul essentially says God's wrath is upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the Jews who have likely silently celebrated God's condemnation of the Gentiles, he is speaking to them as well. Paul then says to them, I'm talking to you too. He says, you are the man. You don't have an excuse. This is the subtle lure of judgmentalism. It's deceptive. It creeps up on us. We don't see it coming. Judgmentalism doesn't just show up quickly. It's subtle and it builds. Judgmentalism first convinces us that we're above judgment before it gives us permission to judge others. Why would the Jews have done this? So this is a question for us. Why is it that the Jews could have believed that nothing that Paul was talking about at the latter half of chapter one was referring to? To them, Well, they had begun to sort of cultivate a persona, a self-concept as a people of, uh, of grandeur and of specialness and of other than. And we, I think we do this too. See, the Jews would have likely been tempted toward this type of judgment for a few reasons. This, this type of believing they were above judgment and therefore in a position where they could judge. And all of which relates to their temptation to believe that they were superior that they were the superior people of God, a, a chosen race, a chosen nation. Or another way of thinking about it, it is that they found their righteousness in something which was made to, to, to made, has made them believe that they were above God's judgment. First, that Jews found righteousness in their ethnicity, that they were God's chosen people. Second, that Jews would have found or, or could likely have found their righteousness in the law. They were given God's written and moral standard. Thirdly, that Jews found righteousness in circumcision. They were even physically set apart and distinct. So because of their ethnicity and because of the law, the religion that was given to them through the Ten Commandments and through the fullness of the, the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish Bible, as well as this mark of circumcision. Each began to tell the story as the people of God received it, that they were superior, they were other than, and that therefore they were not part of the unrighteous and ungodliness that Paul is speaking about. Each of these false assurances of righteousness also made them distinct from other nations. So not just set apart, for God, but set apart from, from the Greeks, from the Gentiles. However, these were never meant to be signs of specialness. 
Nothing that God gives by grace is meant to be a mark of the receivers, the recipients' specialness, but of God's grace and love. According to Pastor uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Paul in some measure has even ordered chapter one in an attempt to directly refute these presumptions and these these ideas of the Jewish people. See, in verses 16 through 17, the gospel is for who? Both the Jew and the Greek. In verse 17 through 24, Paul speaks about the revelations of God through creation and his word and his expectation of holiness. In, In other words, God is not just known through the law, but known through creation. Thirdly, In verses 25 through 32, Paul addresses the body and seeking righteousness through the gratification of the flesh. In other words, signs of righteousness are not meant to be worn externally. It's meant to be the transformation of our inward being, of our heart. So in summary, Paul has been saying the whole time to his Jewish Christian readers, you are not special. You are not special. And even though he's ordered chapter one this way, he knows they're not listening because they think they're special. And so he has to direct his full attention and to try to grab hold of their attention and says, therefore, oh man, I'm talking to you. Judgmentalism is not the way I'm talking about your sin as well. So here's the deal. If you or I have been sitting back over the past 16 weeks, thinking about how sinful everyone else is, which would have been wrong. Paul is saying to us in the spirit of the prophet Nathan, you are the man. You are the one I am trying to speak to, God says. We are being judgmental. Therefore, we are just as guilty as anyone else. Why? This is what Paul explains as he continues in verse one. Let's read it again in its fullness. Verse one Romans chapter two. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul tells his Jewish readers, as well as us who are and have a tendency towards being judgmental, we condemn ourselves. Why is this? Because We have done the exact same things. We are guilty of the same things, the text says. If not in practice, then certainly in sentiment or in heart. It's like if you think you've never broken the Ten Commandments, and you could go down that list and just go, I've I've not not done any of that. If you truly believe that you could do that, you ought to read Jesus' exposition of the Ten Commandments, known as the Sermon on the Mount. He takes the entirety of the letter of the law and reframes it around the heart. For instance, you may be able to say that you've never committed adultery, but Jesus says if you've ever looked at a woman with lust, it's as if you have committed adultery in your hearts. He reframes it around the heart. You may be able to read the Ten Commandments and say, I've never murdered before, but Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart, if you have anger in your heart towards someone else, it's as if you have murdered them in your heart. Therefore, we who judge are guilty of whatever it is we could be possibly judging someone else for. No one is safe. We have all exchanged the truth 
and glory of God for our own righteousness. We have all traded the gospel of Jesus for the gospel of self, for the gospel of whatever idolatry or functional savior that we are bowing the knee to. For some, this leads to lawless sinning. And that's what Paul speaks about in verses 18 through 25. These sort of over invisible displays, whether it be of gossip or of slander, of malice, of faithlessness. So, so for some, it leads to lawlessness. For others, though, it leads to legalistic judgment. This is our current passage. So this kind of thinking and this kind of trading God's glory for or in truth for facsimiles or for shadows of glory, for a lie, some of us do this by way of lawless deeds and others of us do this by way of legalistic judgment. Think about the way it's described in Luke chapter 15 with the two brothers the story of the prodigal son. One brother sins in the way that he lawlessly sins in the far off country, squandering his father's wealth. And the other brother, the older brother, sins against his father in the way that he begrudgingly, legalistically judges his younger brother. Both are sinful. And what Paul tells us about these two different ideologies is that both lead to death. So, We're all in cosmic trouble underneath the weight of God's glory. That's the point of not only verse 18, but but Romans chapter 6, verse 21 through 23, that we are under the wrath of God. We have all fallen short of God's glory. No one is special. As author Dane Ortland explains in his book, Gentle and Lowly, we can vent our fleshly passions by breaking all the rules, or we can vent our fleshly passions by keeping all the rules. But both ways of venting the flesh still need resurrection. We can be immoral, immoral dead people, or we can be moral dead people. Either way, we're dead. See, in sin, rather in the sin of judgmentalism, we find a way to easily see the sins of others by first excusing ours and determining ourselves special before God. That's what the Jews did, and that's what we are prone to do as well. I wonder if this is what's going on in your heart, if this is what's going on in my heart, because if it is, it's crippling, it's crushing, it's wounding, and it leads to death. In previous generations, if you knew any Bible verse, you likely knew John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I, I almost did not remember all of that. I had to look at my notes. It's, it's one of those verses that if you knew anything in the previous generation about the Bible, you likely knew that particular verse. And it's a great verse. Believing in Jesus leads to salvation and eternal life. Yes and amen. Praise God. Good news. Interestingly, I find this verse less popular today. More and more people are familiar with Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, even though they likely don't even know it. Matthew 7, verse 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. Today, I think this verse is much more universally known. We disdain judgment. And so the sentiment of Matthew chapter 7 speaks to our hearts. 
Usually the shorthand version is don't judge or you can't judge me. So it's this sort of general statement or idea that I am above reproach or you should be above reproach. I won't judge you. You don't judge me. And our familiarity with this verse over and against another really reveals a kind of preference. See, to claim a virtue like this seems to be so freeing. To say that you don't judge, I don't judge, we don't judge because we're all free. After all, who wants to be judged? See, basically judgment is making a moral determination upon someone or something. The word Paul uses here means to pass a verdict, especially one of condemnation. In court, judges consider, hopefully without bias, evidence presented by two opposing sides of a particular case and make some sort of determination or verdict, a pronouncement then of of innocent or guilty. However, outside the courtroom, I think we feel a sense of social liberation with the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter seven. I I think it's, it's the words like this and the sentiment that led Tupac, the rapper back in 1996 to say, only God can judge me or brand Nubian in 93 that you gotta love me or leave me alone. You cannot judge. We like to believe that we live in a society which is free and free from moral evaluation, criticism, and the determination of others. We want to be our own moral compass. We want to be our own judge. But this is not exactly, or not at all rather, what Jesus communicated to Nicodemus in John 3, nor what he communicated in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. See, what's ironic when we look at the fuller context, especially of John 316, it is that Jesus is speaking about judgment. Just a few sentences later, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Our God is the righteous judge. In fact, he alone is the righteous judge. And the way we live reveals, the way we live reveals whether or not we actually trust him as the judge. Additionally, in Matthew 7, Jesus was concerned with the integrity of his listeners, not their moral autonomy. In verse 5 of chapter 7 in Matthew, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to that to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, the idea Jesus was communicating in Matthew 7 was not to refrain from judgment completely, but to make moral observations and determinations about others in humility, knowing that God is the ultimate judge of you and of them. So this was not some sort of a call to a morally free or or rather uh, a society that was morally free to do as they please, but rather a, a person, a people meant to first submit to God, to know that they are under the authority of a judge, and then with humility to count others' needs more important than their own and to care for one another by speaking the truth in love. See, if nothing else, we should understand this. We are not the judge. We are not always grounded in truth, And we lack both the moral purity and cosmic wisdom necessary to be judge. So Paul speaks in line with the words of Jesus, both in John and in Matthew. And he he says to us in Romans chapter 2, he says to his Jewish readers in the first century, he says to us here at Church in the Square in the 21st century, that God alone is 
judge. Look, look at verse two. We know, Paul says, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Judgment comes from God, yes, and judgment falls on everybody. Did, did, did you see that? We know that judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things, referring to those who judge others, right? Though uh, through different pathways of sin, judgment falls on everyone. As Marva Don has written, ultimately, sin always produces its own destructive consequences from which we can't escape. She says, we choose our own judgment. In other words, you can't escape judgment. You will be judged for this sort of lawless sinning visibly, or you will be judged for legalistic judgmentalism and sort of the moral code. Or or in in Ortland's words that we read just a minute ago, that ultimately we will be found immoral and dead or moral and dead. That ultimately either way, we will not be saving ourselves. See, remember, there are two types of judgment. One from man and the other from God. God's judgment is pure and it's always fair. Or, or God's judgment is always, we could say, grounded in the truth. Man's judgment, though, serves self and is easily swayed. It's not grounded in the truth. This means that God alone is just and God alone is always grounded in the truth. So you might say, why can't I be judge? Or why can't someone else be the judge of my life? Because we are not grounded sufficiently, completely, and eternally in the truth. So no one is special. And when God judges us, we will get exactly what we deserve. Did you hear that? That's what verse two is telling us. Notice notice the language that the judgment of God rightly falls it rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, you may be thinking, is judgment really necessary? In fact, some of us perhaps in a sort of progressive mindset and worldview dream of a world where there is no rules and regulations or there's no judgment of right and wrong that ultimately if we were to be a much more free society and open to sort of a self-determination, a self Uh, identification, then we would not have to judge one another. Everyone can simply learn to love and leave one another alone. Why is judgment necessary? We may even ask why all the trouble with these rules and sins of lawlessness and legalism? Why doesn't God just forgive and be gracious and help us? Why all the trouble? See, this may seem this idea of judgment that God is judge over us and that it rightly falls upon us. And it might seem unnecessary and cruel. Well, we should know that theologically, God's judgment falls underneath his righteousness. It, it, it's ju- judgment is an extension of his holiness and justice. One important thing to understand about theology is that no one theology is on an island. In, in, in other words, there, there is a connection. There's a connection between God's judgment in this case and his holiness and justice. So to say that we don't want God to judge is to say we don't want God to be holy. And to say that we don't want God to be holy is to say we don't want him to be just. And to say that we don't want God to be just will lead to a world 
where all kinds of heinous evils continue to proliferate and cause decay and destruction and pain. And so when we ask God to take his hands off of judgment, he takes his hands off of order, he takes his hands off of righteousness and the good and flourishing world that he has created. We don't know really what we're asking for. When we say that God is righteous, see, we're speaking about the union of his goodness and, and the right and the true, all of these things that make up his core quality and composition. Theologian Louis Burkhoff says simply, the fundamental idea of righteousness is that of strict adherence to the law. And the Bible constantly testifies to God's faithfulness in character and action to his word, to his law. The psalmist celebrates and worships God for his faithfulness and righteousness. Psalm 119, 37, or 137 and 138 Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. This is what Paul is saying to us in Romans chapter 2. Because God is righteous and because God is faithful, he makes rules which are righteous and he judges in accordance with those rules with integrity and he judges righteously. So God alone is the righteous judge. So Paul's point so far, when we judge others, we bring judgment upon ourselves. Our judgmentalism is hypocritical for two reasons, because we are guilty of the sins for which we condemn others, and God alone is the righteous judge, not us. Are you tracking with me in this? That there are two reasons why we are hypocrites as it relates to judgmentalism. Because we're guilty of what we are pointing out in others as their sin. And also because we are, not, we are not fit. We are not rightly fit to be the judge. Only God is. And so Paul continues, verses 3 and 4. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In short, here's what Paul is saying. You are not special. I am not special in the face of God's moral and righteous judgment. Paul arrives at this conclusion through a series of questions. He asks, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? And do you presume God's kindness and forbearance and patience? What Paul is getting at is a sense of entitlement. We need to hear this. Church, we need to hear this. God help me. Entitlement is the presumption of privilege. And the Jews were behaving with incredible moral privilege. This is what we'll simply call spiritual entitlement. There's a kind of spiritual entitlement that the Apostle Paul is putting his finger on and he's pushing here, right? Because remember, the Jews, like you and I, might have just been saying, man, this is a great sermon. I've memorized it. Love that. Tweeted that. Thought that was great. Love that from chapter one. Stick it to those evil people. They're the sinners. And Paul's like, you who judge, I'm talking to you. And all of a sudden, he's got our attention. He's got the Jews' attention. See, according to Paul, spiritual entitlement is the presumption of escaping God's judgment and receiving God's kindness. It is the presumption of escaping God's judgment and receiving God's kindness. And here's where we need to be careful. Be careful. 
This is a great opportunity for us to think about those spiritually entitled people in our lives, right? You must not be talking about me because I'm not entitled. He's talking about those other people who are entitled. Let's not err in the same way that our Jewish brothers and sisters did in the first century. Let's consider this for ourselves first. This is for you. This is for me. Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Do you think you deserve God's kindness? Do you think that you are special? Let me explain to us how how we each answer those questions in the affirmative. Yes, we believe that ultimately in our hearts. And then let me, by God's grace, help us to see from the scriptures how God in Christ brings about help, remedy, and forgiveness for us in that. Do you, ex- the, the, the way I think to really expose this is to ask ourselves the question first, do you excuse your sin? When we think about, do we think, do we believe, do we presume that we will escape God's judgment? We should ask, do we excuse our sin? See, perhaps the most common way we excuse sin is by appealing to context and conditions. What I mean by that is that we either explain away our particular context or our particular sin, rather, with this context or a particular uh, of a particular biblical writer. First, we uh, read the Bible and think to ourselves, "This couldn't possibly expect be expected of me today." Perhaps you do this with the scriptures teaching on sexuality or or drunkenness or obedience to parents or honoring our parents. See, I know that I I personally can do this with the Sabbath. I can look at God's commands about resting and tell myself there's no, there's no such rest uh, or that no way that such rest could possibly include me, a pastor who has to work so hard. You see, I'm the one, I, I think, uh, that has to make sure that everybody gets rest, that, that I'm special because I'm a pastor. Therefore, I, I excuse my lack of rest and refrain uh, from being diso- seeing disobedience in, in this kind of behavior. I, I, I see my disobedience really as something that is necessary in order to help other people not sin. How foolish is that? That I believe that I am special, that I excuse my sin so that I can help others not sin. This is a kind of judgmentalism that leads to hypocrisy, which is both because I am guilty of what I could accuse others of, and I'm not in a position morally, I'm not pure, I'm not wise enough to sit in the position of judge. See, we excuse sin by foolishly appealing to some sort of bland biblical context. I know I can do that. I wonder about you. So the other way that we excuse sin is by explaining away specific conditions that we're experiencing. And this may happen more. And quite frankly, one of the reasons this happens more, like one of the reasons that we are less likely to excuse our sin based on biblical context and more likely to excuse it based on our our particular condition is because we're just not reading our Bibles. So you have to actually know what the Bible teaches in order to 
say that's just for that particular time. But, but if we're not reading our Bibles, we merely hear or, or, or receive some sort of idea of what righteousness looks like and just go, well, I, I don't know that that matches the feeling that I have or my experience. See, we appeal to things like fatigue or stress or even COVID restrictions as if God would understand why we would need to sin or be righteous or irrighteously or unrighteously lazy towards him because of a particular situation. Church, nothing in the Bible seems to suggest that God's righteousness bends with our particular condition and bends with our particular situation, our levels of comfort, the season of life that we're in. So I remember, I remember very vividly excusing my sin regularly this way when I was in the midst of my pornography addiction. I know I can still do this with gossip and I have to be so careful. Even, even our staff, I know as a church staff and as an elder team, we have to be so careful of the sin of gossip because we've been entrusted with stories, your discipleship plans, your restoration plans and what God is up to in your lives that we have to be so careful. And by God's grace, working with men and women of integrity, albeit imperfect, this can be a challenge. It can be a challenge to make sure that we safeguard and not say, well, we're just talking about them so that we can help them when in actuality there can be comparing going on. There can be a kind of judgment going on. There can be sin going on. What about you? When do you use your specific condition as a reason why you are spiritually entitled to escape judgment? You excuse your sin. I know I can do this and God has been clear about that with me as I've studied this particular passage. What about you? How is it that you, ex- you excuse your sin believing that you have some sort of spiritual entitlement to escape judgment? That's our first question. Our second is do you presume upon God's grace? Or to put it another way, do you think God should always be nice to you? Our presumption upon God is a direct result of excusing our sin. When our sin is ever before us, meaning when we are daily asking God to reveal our sin, to search us and know us, try us, know our anxious thoughts and the spirit of the psalmist, right? we're daily confessing to him, we're confessing to our group, when we just constantly have our sin before us, not not as a shame-based lens of our personal identity, but as a constant reminder of our imperfection and as our need, we will not presume upon God. We'll thank him. Everything becomes grace when our sin is ever before us because we know we're undeserving. My wife is God's grace. My children are God's grace. My home is God's grace. Even my technology and my possessions and my clothes, they're all grace. None of it I'm entitled to. This next breath to finish this recording of this sermon is a gift of God when my sin is ever before me. I presume nothing upon God. To the best way I know to discern this in my own heart is when I'm not grateful nor content. See, spiritual entitlement has a hold of my life when nothing satisfies me. How about you? See, it's scrolling through my my favorite brand the day after something I bought from them has just arrived. It's the judgmentalism that comes when I see that family, that picture of that family in the suburbs, the anger that wells up in me when I see the protester at Grant Park, the condescension I feel when that group of friends gets together. 
See, always craving more or someone else's experience does not reveal something in a, as by way of a need to buy. It doesn't reveal a, a need that I need to satisfy within myself or in my own faculty. It actually reveals an idol. That's the presumption of God's kindness. That's turning divine generosity into compensation of supposed specialness. We change God's grace into something we are due, not something that we absolutely do not deserve. What about you? What about you? How do you presume upon his kindness and feel entitled to his grace? See, the diagnosis of the heart, which Paul is ultimately delivering to his readers, is a lack of submission and trust. After all, making excuses and presumptions is the exact opposite of submitting and trusting. Both excusing our sin and and, and presuming God's grace fail to submit to God as God and to God as the only judge. We don't trust that he will judge righteousness. We don't trust that he'll judge us. We don't trust that he will bring justice to this world or to those around us. And therefore we take a seat that we think God has left vacant and we judge others. That's spiritual entitlement. That's what turns into unrighteous judgmentalism toward my brothers and my sisters, my friends and my neighbors. And when we act like the judge, excusing sin, presuming grace, we are replacing God as judge and we are deserving of the wrath of God upon us. When we think and live this way, I think we are always shocked by God's judgment. It doesn't make any sense to us. God's judgment does not make sense when we excuse our sin and presume his grace. And we even believe when we, when we see this judgment of God and we read about this wrath of God, we believe that God is acting out of character. When in actuality, He is merely acting outside of the character that we have fabricated for him in our minds. He's not acting out of his character. He's acting out of a character, out of a box that we are trying to fit him into. This is why judgment surprises us. This is why consequence surprises us. This is why his wrath surprises us. Do you excuse your sin? Do you think God should always be nice to you? Do you presume his grace and kindness? Church, we must repent. We must seek forgiveness and we must turn away from sin and toward God. God, would you do this in our church? In fact, that's the point of his kindness. Notice again in verse four, God's kindness, Paul says, is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is not meant to lead to spiritual entitlement, but repentance. Repentance is literally a change of mind, one writer put it, a change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action to God. Repentance is a change of a whole personality from a sinful course of action back to God. Repentance is going back to God 
which leads to a different kind of thinking, a different kind of believing, a different kind of acting. The way scripture teaches repentance, though, makes it impossible in our own power. Have you ever discerned that with the Bible? That the Bible often teaches us things that we can't do, calls us to something that we are unable to do. Like, like when we are told that you must be holy, God says, as I am holy. The, the Bible never lowers the standard to meet our ability. The, the scriptures always communicate the holiness of God and reveals to us the way in which God makes us holy, not the way that we become holy ourselves. After all, the issue with sin is left, is, is, it comes up when we are left to ourselves. And when we're left to ourselves, we excuse our sin and we presume grace. So, so we actually can't do this. We, we are unable to do this. When we are left to ourselves, we do not repent. We continue to sin. See, unrepentant sin always leads to more sin. Repentance, therefore, is a gift. That's what Acts chapter 5 verse 32 tells us. God exalted Christ at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Christ gives us repentance as a gracious reward that he purchased on the cross. It was a reward that he purchased for us. See, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, was the only one who could escape the wrath and the judgment of God. He was without sin. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he committed Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Additionally, Christ was the only one who was deserving of God's kindness. Because Christ did not need grace and enjoyed unadulterated union with the Father and Spirit for eternity. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse five, and now fathers, he's praying to his father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, so Jesus Christ, the only one who could escape the judgment of God and the wrath of God because he was perfect and did not deserve judgment and the only one deserving of God's kindness because he never needed grace. He never needed forgiveness. He always enjoyed the eternal union and glory and peace and joy with his heavenly father and with the Holy Spirit forever. So Jesus is above our predicament. He is over our situation. He is not trapped by our sinful condition. And yet, here's the good news, church. Are you ready for some good news? In God's incomprehensible genius in his unfathomable love and in his unthinkable righteousness, Jesus Christ, the son of God, condescends himself and takes our place. Jesus took our place on the cross. But do you know what happens? I, I know that you've heard that idea before, likely, but do you know what happens when Jesus takes our place on the cross? When Jesus took our place on the cross, he took our judgment. That's Romans chapter four. When Jesus took our place on the cross, he took our sin. That's 2 Peter chapter two. When Jesus took our place on the cross, he took our consequence. That's 2 Corinthians chapter five. When Jesus took our place on the cross, he took God's wrath, which we alone deserve. That's Romans chapter 
3, that means by grace through faith, according to the sovereign election of God, because of the work of Christ on the cross, in Christ, we are made righteous. In Christ, we are pronounced innocent. In Christ, we are freed from eternal condemnation. In Christ, we are no longer under wrath, but under grace. Can I get an amen? See, now as those who have received this type of forensic and legal and actual pardon, spiritual entitlement is the most grievous of sins. It makes no sense. We must repent and confess the sin of spiritual entitlement. See, when we receive all of this in Christ, we don't need to excuse our sin because we know Christ has already paid for it all. When we receive all of this in Christ, we don't need to presume upon grace. We marvel that someone like me, that someone like us, could be so loved by a God like him. When we receive all of this in Christ, we don't become discontent and entitled. We become joyful. We become worshipers. We become glad in him. We trust him. We submit to him. We give our lives for him. We don't excuse sin. We confess it. We don't find loopholes, we seek reconciliation. We don't presume, we repent. We don't nuance our disobedience. We submit to God, the only righteous judge. See, in receiving such a grace, we should be regularly drawn towards repentance and gratitude and find satisfaction in God alone. Church, my brothers, my sisters, Can you even imagine if we became a church not marked by entitlement, not marked by our presumption of grace, not marked by our constant bending and shaking and weaving and wiggling and not trying as our very best to not confess sin. What if we became a church marked by repentance, that we confessed our sin regularly and that by God's power through the work of Christ, empowered by his spirit, We turned back to God and our thinking was reformed by the gospel. Our believing was transformed by the renewal of our minds and our living was informed by the righteousness of Christ and his word and not our own aspirations and self-determination and our own specialness, but his specialness. See, Jesus is the only righteous judge who did not deserve judgment and he has pronounced you righteous. He has pronounced us righteous. That's where real freedom is. Not in avoiding confessing our sin, but realizing that Christ has paid and died for your sin. So Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to worship you all the more today. Help us to lay aside tired and weary foolishness like not repenting, not confessing, downplaying our sin and presuming upon your kindness. Help us to be humble. Help us to submit. Help us to not hear the call to repentance and think about those in our lives who need to do it first. But Father, help us to submit. Help us to repent that we might become a people of repentance, a people who trust you, a people who submit to you, a people 
who are made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.